Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deck Arts Podcast. Today, I'm here with Kara Nichols, and we will be talking about the exhibition Fringe Elements at Kent State University Museum that runs from July 2017 to July 2018. Kara worked on this exhibit this summer, and it covers everything from leather strips to silken tassels, assembling pieces from around the world. Leather fringe is found on Native American dress, Spanish equestrian wear, even suits from 1960s counterculture. Long silken fringe is found on dresses from the Jazz Age, shawls exported from China, and items from the Victoria period. So, Kara, what is the connection you have to Kent State, and what was your experience like working on the exhibit? Well, I'm a graduate of Kent State Fashion School um, Design and Merchandising Program, and I graduated in 2000. Um, and the Kent State Fashion Museum, it's actually the Kent State University Museum because it does contain decorative arts along with a huge collection of 30,000 pieces of fashion. So the museum is connected to the fashion school. So I had that wonderful opportunity while going to school to be able to go and get influenced and excited about clothing at the museum. It was the perfect scenario for anybody that's working uh, towards a fashion degree. So um, luckily enough, uh, when I was looking for internships to do this uh, past summer, I really wanted it to be fashion. Um, I'm currently in the program with you at the new school uh, for uh, history of design curatorial studies, but I'm trying to gear it as much as I can towards fashion. So my internship really needed to be a fashion-related one. Um, Luckily, the director, Jean Drusdo, is still, when I went to school, is still the director there now. So I had emailed her, and I, I asked her if there was any way I could possibly do an internship or help out in any way just to get some experience. And she had passed my email on to the curator, Sarah Hume, who immediately got back to me and said, I'm working on this big exhibition called Fringe Elements, and I could definitely use your help. So that launched me into then um, getting everything ready and prepared to get to Ohio for this uh, past summer. And I worked there uh, for two months, three days a week. And it was the best and most wonderful experience. I had such good hands-on experience. Uh, Sarah let me do so much, um, wanted me to learn. So every time I said, oh, how do you do this? She's like, I'll teach you, and then you do it. So I was able to do everything from um, conservation work, which was terrifying, because they would hand me a 1920s Paul Parade dress and tell me to uh, fix it to the best of my abilities because it was going to go on loan to the upcoming Jazz Age exhibit that was at the Cooper Hewitt and is now at the Cleveland Museum of Art. And they were borrowing 14 more dresses um, from the Kent State Collection, and I got to work on all of those dresses, conserving them. I was doing condition reports. Um, Condition reports you do when you loan a a garment or an object to another museum, you have to mark down everything that's wrong with it. So then when you get it back after they borrow it, you can then check to make sure nothing more extensive damage has happened. So I had to do condition reports on all the dresses. Um, then I did the conservation of some of them because they couldn't be worn on the mannequin without conserving and reapplying like stitches to the shoulders because these dresses are so heavy. And we'll talk more about that um, when we get into the fringe exhibition of why they are so heavy. Um, And then I also did hairstyles for each of the mannequins for this exhibition. So I did a lot of research on hairstyles of the 1920s to 30s and the Jazz Age. Um, I also did hairstyles from 
1840s to 1877, and um, 1877 was my absolute favorite hairstyle. Um, I made a comment that 1877 was the 1980s of hairstyles. They're very large and very big and very decorative. So uh, I was very, very lucky to do so much hands-on work and learn so much at the museum. Um, I was able to set up the exhibition, to dress the mannequins, to work on exhibition display, all the way down to um, uh, working on a catalog in Photoshop and InDesign of all the garments that we photographed for uh, the exhibition. Wow, that's amazing. That sounds like a lot of work. It was a lot of work, yeah. I mean, I started at three days a week, um, and then I worked from home for my current job two days a week, which I had to, because um, I work in design and merchandising. I'm a director at a fashion company, so I had to make sure I had my hand in both. Um, but once I got started, they, were, they said, oh, we could have used you five days a week, because there was just so much preparation to do for the exhibition. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So, um, do you want to sort of run through how the exhibition is laid out, what sort of looks like going through? So, the exhibition is located in a big hall, and the, the lighting is uh, kind of dim, um, just because we don't want really harsh lighting coming down on clothes. We have clothes that are from the 17th century, so we don't want any damage to happen. I have a question about that. So, uh, how does that affect clothes? Does it fade them? Yes, yeah, the coloration. Okay. Um, it can also damage the fibers, okay. so uh, you have to be very careful um, preserving garments and the coloration. It's the same um, in decorative arts as well. Um, I'm going to do an upcoming podcast with you on color uh, on the exhibition that I'm working on for my capstone thesis, and we are putting a cinnabar decorative art piece into the show, and we have to make sure the lighting is proper because if it's in the wrong lighting, it will suck the color out of it. So we have to be very, very careful. Same as with clothing. Mm -hmm. So um, the exhibition layout, uh, we laid it into different sections. Um, We did self-fringe, integral to the textile, which would be kind of like macrame. Think of like it's just the continuation of the fabric and then finished off by knotting it and braiding it. Um, Long and silky, which is where a lot of the 1920s Jazz Age pieces went into. Um, We did color fringe. We have white fringe, which was very popular in the 18th and 19th centuries. Red fringe, which we uh, put Macedonian pieces in. And these Macedonian pieces, um, red was a meaning of fertility. So a lot of brides wore aprons with red fringe to ensure that they were fertile for their upcoming nuptials. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Multicolored fringe. Uh, we have hats and purses, and we had tassels and fly fringe, and lastly, beaded fringe. And we laid them out per each category in a circular rotation um, in the gallery, and we did a catalog um, for each piece numbered, and then they, the people could walk through the exhibit and then look at the number, look at the piece, and then read about that. And so did you pair outfits with shoes and accessories, or was it just the dress on a mannequin? It was because this exhibition is only about fringe. We did not pair it with anything, no accessories, no shoes. Um, Unfortunately, we were trying to find a pair of shoes that had fringe on it for the exhibition, but uh, we couldn't find anything in the collection, so that was kind of unfortunate. But um, the the pieces, we did have a pair of um, kind of like, uh, I guess they're called uh, knee bands, and they're from um, Transylvania, Romanian, and they're worn by men, 
and it's for this uh, kind of secret brotherhood called the Kalasari, and they do this special dance that kind of is a cross between a galloping horse and a flying fairy, and no one knows the exact origin time period that this started, but the written record started around 1700s, um, and it's the Brotherhood of Men, and they do this special dance while carrying a fake horse head, um, and they go into different um, community areas, and then they dance this dance, and it's supposed to ward off fairies or cure anybody that's affected by fairies. And they still do it today, so if you want to go on and Google the Kalosari um, in Romania, you'll see these neat bands, kind of, and then they create, like, movement. They have yarn fringe and bells and beads. So we were lucky enough to have this piece. This is the closest thing we had to, like, footwear legwear in the exhibition. But it's really interesting. The story behind it's great. You can see the videos of them actually doing this dance. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So that was one of my favorite pieces. Um, in the exhibition. Not my favorite, but one of my favorite pieces. So what would be your favorite? Um, my favorite piece is probably, um, well, there's a couple. Um, the, the first one is also my mother's favorite piece, and it's a Yves Saint Laurent dress from the 1960s, and it's the underneath of the dress. It's a sheath, long sheath dress, so it comes below the knee, um, the entirety of the, ga of the gown is all sequins. And then over top of the sequins are about four inch long beaded fringe. So this dress is gorgeous, striking, and heavy. And when we were putting it on the mannequin, Sarah and I were having such a hard time because it's a very thin, narrow dress. So we had to find our thinnest mannequin. I think we tried three different mannequins until we got to the skinniest mannequin. And then trying to get it on and shift it on without, like, ruining the, the beaded fringe falling off or destroying the dress. I mean, it took us probably 20 minutes to get this dress on the mannequin just because it was very, very heavy. We had to be very, very careful not to uh, ruin the beads and then to make sure it fit. We could barely get it zipped up. I mean, the person who owned this dress had to be just tiny. Like a double zero or Like something? a double zero, yeah. I mean, it was so, we were, we were laughing because we were just like, we were using our skinniest mannequin and she's still too large. That's <laughs> but crazy. That was one of my favorite dresses. And then I think one of my other favorite dresses was from um, the 1840s and it was worn to Lincoln's second inauguration. What? Yeah. That's so cool. So how do you, how does Kent State... Um, go about acquiring these items? So the museum started um, due to Shannon Rogers and Jerry Silverman, and they were costume designers in the golden age of, um, of movies. So they started, I think, in the 1930s, and they were in Hollywood, um, and they're both from Ohio, around the Kent, Ohio area. And so when they... they through their time working in costume, they collected a huge array of clothing. Um, and when they retired, they wanted to open a fashion school in Kent, Ohio, as a legacy. And they asked for it to be named after them. So the, the school that I graduated with is on Kent State University campus, but it's called the Shannon Rogers and Jerry Silverman School of Fashion Design and Merchandising. On top of opening the school, they also opened a museum and donated all of their clothing. This then led to many of the movie stars donating clothing. And so this wide array of clothing started just accumulating and other people heard and they started donating. And now we do go to auctions and we do buy pieces specific. There was one piece of Perenza Schuler dress 
that was purchased specifically for this exhibition, but for the most part, it's um, more of donations. So people just around you know, the United States here of Kent State or know of Kent State uh, University Museum and get in contact to see if you know we would take donations, if the item's good enough and museum quality. So I was lucky enough to be there when people would come in and show us different pieces that they had that they wanted to donate. Some we would accept, some that they were not quite museum quality. So it's really interesting. Wow, that is really interesting. Yeah. So how do you, um, what is sort of the parameter for museum worth? Like, it has to be in very pristine t condition, or it has to be so unique and so different that it, no other museum or costume collection has mm -hmm. anything quite like it. Um, in those cases, we do have conservationists come in, and they will you know, fix yeah. the garment or the object to the best of their ability and get more worthy to be displayed. Yeah. But we do have one, um, we have a quilt that Mary Todd Lincoln made. Um, the condition is not good, so it will never be displayed because we can't take it out. We don't want it to disintegrate or anything more to happen to it. But we can, I was lucky enough to be able to see it behind glass in the, in our collections area. So that will never be displayed, but we have items such to that, that, um, they'll never be displayed, but I mean, to have something of that caliber is quite amazing. Yeah. So is it in a glass um, like temperature controlled. And yeah, just the collections are temperature controlled. It's cooler, um, just because the like lends itself to not have humidity, mm. and you know humidity can cause some problems. Yeah, with clothing and dampness. Okay, um, I when I was so I was going through the collection. Um, Kara sent me this write up that she did, and. I was trying to figure out what all these pieces were, but while I was going through, I realized that I would not be able to do this because there were so many Charles Worth dresses. Like, there's this, the tinsel dress. Mm -hmm. And then I was... Then, also, this is really cool. So, I went to school in Charleston, and there was the Charleston dress, and I got yes. super excited about that. Uh -huh. That's really cool. But there's... the Your collection, when you go through, there's honestly so much. Yeah. And I... It's crazy... Do you, is there like an estimate of how much you think that they, in terms of dresses, have at the museum? Uh, they have, I'm not sure on exact amount of dresses, but for the fashion portion, this is including accessories, purses, shoes, there's 30,000 pieces. That does not include the decorative arts, and they have a very nice collection of glass and ceramic as well, so that's a huge section of the museum in its own special room. But for the fashion portion, there's uh, 30,000 pieces. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna post the link so everyone can find the collections because it's just cool to go through. Like, if you just literally type in, like... A designer. Um, yeah, it comes up with, like, five pages of, like, everything. It's so fun. Um, and then, um, so, I guess you weren't this... Um, this is just sort of a uh, side question. Oh my gosh, she's so cute. Uh, um, Sorry, I have a dog who just decided to be part of the interview here. <laughs> I welcome it. Um, so how did the museum then expand from being fashion-based to not? To have the decorative yes. arts as well. 
I think they wanted to have more of a broad spectrum and just not be completely a fashion exhibition. And I think also um, people started donating these objects. So what else were you going to do but display them and make a whole room for them? And that gives people more of a wide range. Some people aren't into fashion. Some people are more into the decorative arts. So it's a little bit of everything for everyone. Yeah. Um, I love that fact that they have that because it does lead for inspiration. Um, when I chose to go into the History of Design and Curatorial Study program, it was completely different than my undergrad, which was fashion-based. Um, and now I'm seeing how all design ties in and shows how everything is translated during the certain time periods. And it, it is almost like, in the loose terms, it's a fashion that goes on during that time period across from art to fashion to music to dance. So it's still to this day. Yeah. Do they do a lot of exhibits together, or are they often separate? They don't do many exhibitions on the decorative arts as a permanent collection, but when it does lend to what's going on in that exhibition, they will pull in pieces of that. Um, so they have done a couple exhibitions. Um, they did a Lady of Leisure exhibition, and then they did bring in different decorative arts for the display. Man, that yeah. sounds really cool, yeah, too. Yeah, it was really... Their exhibitions are so great and so exciting, um, I don't want to say any more about the upcoming exhibitions until I know that they're finalized, but they have some really, really interesting ones that are coming up. Yeah, and everyone should go check out the museum. <laughs> like, take a little trip to the Midwest. Um, I, another part um, that I thought was really cool was sort of the rebellious edge, the 1950s, and then, like, Hell's Angels and Elvis Presley, mm -hmm. because I never think of biker gangs having fringe, yeah. and I always forget that Elvis Presley then had that really cool uh -huh. white The fringe. white rhinestone yeah. jumpsuit with yeah. the fringe sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So after the 20s, I think um, I, you saw this through my write-up, was after the 20s during the Jazz Age, and of course everything was excess, everything was glorious and beautiful and glamorous, and then of course the Great Depression hit, so this excess treatment couldn't really be applied to clothes so much, so fringe fell out of fashion during those time periods, but by the 1950s, when the war was over, and people started living a happy, more jubilant life, um, fringe started to make a comeback, but this this also was a time when people were kind of to be leading to be more rebellious and having a little bit more fun again, so... Um, the Hells Angels started incorporating leather, black leather fringe with their their jackets, um, gloves, even think about their their hogs that they ride on. They have the fringe tassels hanging down on the handles. So it became not so much a lady's gorgeous decorative treatment. It became more of like a rebellious, riotous, like man's treatment. And then Elvis Presley then adopted this and took it in and put it into his uh, famous white rhinestone jumpsuit that he um, wore going into the 60s as well. So fringe kind of changed its... Uh, direction a little bit there yeah, yeah yeah it definitely took on a different meaning and then um where is it today you mentioned a couple um designers mm -hmm. um diane von furstenberg Derek lamb um anna sweet mm -hmm. um i saw so i didn't so i knew the other two but i did know her and i googled her and saw her recent collection on the runway she is awesome yeah she's amazing she's really great yeah uh, she's definitely one of my favorite designers. She kind of takes everything and then push, she's, she pushes the envelope when it comes to fashion. So she takes a little bit more 
um, further than a lot of designers would do. Um, but yeah, so French, uh, as I said, does fall in and out of style, but um, right now it's currently very in style and then trending. A lot of the designers are showing it on the runway. Um, it's incorporated into everything from leather to suede to beads to macrame. I mean, the whole like bohemian trend that's never seeming to die always has fringe. And that's where a lot of the macrame comes in. And that's the knotted braided material that you can make a whole garment out of just that. So um, fringe, not, not dead, not going out of style anytime soon. Um, the Western trend is also coming back up. So you'll see a lot of fringe on bags again. Um, studying that goes along with it to really, really give it that kind of Western flair. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you go on and you look the fall-winter 2018 uh, fashion shows just hit in New York last week or the week before, and there was there was a lot of fringe incorporated into that. So Exciting. Out, yeah. I like fringe. Yeah, I mean, fringe, I mean, look at my pillows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is a fun pillow, guys. <laughs> Oh, man, this is fun. Yeah, all over fringe. <laughs> I like it. Um, was there anything when you were doing your research that surprised you or you didn't necessarily know? Or um, Okay, so I think my biggest surprise of the exhibition was when um, we started getting all the dresses out of the collections and we were putting them together and photographing them. And there was two big surprises um, that I had, and they don't have so much to do with fringe, but more so the garment and the undergarments. So when we were working with the dresses from the um, 1800s, they had what were called stays or underlinings, and we had to make sure everything is so completely accurate, because you have people who are costume historians coming into the museum, and they will criticize everything. So the hair has to be an exact hairstyle from the time period of that dress. So hair can change from 1843 to 1844. You really have to do your research. Same as with these stays. You have to make sure that the bustle on the back is like correctly proportioned and, and out as far as it would be during that time period, as well as all the underlinings and the tool and the fluff and crinoline. You know, there was just so many. There's hip pads. I mean, the extensive use of these underlinings, I was in stays, I was shocked. I'm like, why do we have to put, you know, five hip pads on this distress form? And Sarah would be like, well, this is how it was during this time. So we have to replicate it as much as we can to be exact. So that was kind of, I was like, you know, oh, we can't just shortcut and, you know, put it over <laughs> and like, fluff the dress up. So it had to be exact. Um, the second thing that surprised me is we were getting this dress out. It was, um, from the 1800s, the Plains Indian, possibly Sioux, and this dress is a, a gorgeous, gorgeous suede leather fringe dress with glass beading. Now, this thing was so heavy that I could not carry it alone, So, because it was so long. The woman who wore it had to have been six feet, so it definitely was a ceremonial dress with the amount of bead. The amount of bead work was, is in, it's breathtaking, so... Um, Hopefully, if you go online, you can see, um, I think that they're going to be doing a video of the exhibition soon. Sarah usually does a video, and she walks everyone through the exhibition. And this dress you'll see is just the whole top portion is just all beadwork. Now, the two of us are trying to carry this out of the collections room because it's just so heavy, and it kept, it's so bead-heavy on the top that it kept sliding out. So we really had to be the two of us kind of like maneuvering it down. 
and then trying to get it up over the mannequin's head. I mean, we were straining. I was like, oh, I don't need to go to the gym tonight because this dress was so incredibly heavy. And then I'm just like, how did this woman wear this and be comfortable in this? Because it was just weighted down so much that it just, it would have pushed on her shoulders. I just don't even, I couldn't even imagine wearing it. That's probably why it was a ceremonial, so it wouldn't have been worn for that long. But there was no give. It's one section, so there's no, like, give. So when we're trying to get the mannequin's arms up, one arm wouldn't come up, so we're trying to pull it sideways and then up, and somehow I got stuck under the dress at one point, and, you know, it was... (laughs) It was very hot. (laughs) So... Leather is not breathable, so you can imagine. Um, Wow. Yeah, so that one really, really shocked me. Just because I went to pick the dress up myself, and I I was like, I can't really do this. This isn't going to (laughs) work. This isn't going to (laughs) work. That's that's so interesting. But, um, yeah, because I never think about the weight of something. Yeah. Because it's always just seems like it's being effortlessly when you go and see it. Um, but you also mentioned the hairstyles, so are there wigs on the mannequins? So the mannequins are these just this beautiful, just pristine, snow white, um, clean, clean, clean. All the mannequins are the same. And then the hair is made out of white craft paper. So you know those the rolls of craft paper that are little, tiny, tiny rolls, and then you kind of have to unravel them, and they turn out to be about two to three inches wide. So we make all the hairstyles out of this craft paper. So it's like me, a glue gun, scissors, (laughs) curl. Like I use the scissors to curl and wrap and roll. And yeah, it's, I mean, that was one of my favorite things to do. I would spend hours in the basement by myself making hairstyles. Was it so hard? I can't imagine. It was. So my first hairstyle I was doing was uh, from the 1840s, and it was for the um, Lincoln inauguration dress. So luckily, that during that time, it was kind of parted in the middle and straight and kind of came up under a little bit. Um, so that one wasn't as hard. And then, of course, my second one happened to be the 1877 one, which had ringlets and curls and roses and bows. So that one was a little extreme. I mean, I'd work, I'd work on one hairstyle maybe like a day and a half just because it took such a long time to unroll all that craft paper and then to do the research. I mean, I had to find paintings that were accurate during that time period. You can't just like go online and say 1877 hairstyle and then see women nowadays dressed up in historical clothing and follow that. So you really had to do your research and make sure you had the right and accurate hairstyle. Yeah. Wow. So is it most of the costumes based um, on American sort of style clothes or? It's cross-cultural. So there is clothing, like I said, from Macedonia, Romania, French. And they were just brought here by immigrants? Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. Immigrants or, yeah, I mean, people that... Yeah, immigrants, you know, ancestors, everybody brought them over. Um, I'm not sure if they do buy things from other countries at this point, or they just stick to, I'm not sure on that um, aspect, but most of these were things that came over to America. Wow, that's really cool. That's so exciting. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about this. I appreciate it. So um, I'll post a link to the... Um, exhibit so everyone can go on and see everything that they have and the collections and I'll post a video of the um, 
the Transylvania men's stockings because <laughs> those sound awesome. <laughs> They're pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much.